Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. You can catch us every Friday where we take a look at and discuss the contents of Another Weekends, which is a kind of cosmopolitan Christian guide to where God's grace is spilling out in popular culture, film, television, music, literature, and much, much more. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Ethan Richardson, who authored this week's Another Weekends. Dr. Richard Leahy, a few years ago, observed that the average high school student today has the anxiety levels of what the average psychiatric patient would have had as an adult in the 1950s. It seems like we're all in a performance pressure cooker. How does that affect the life of high school students, college students, their parents? How does it affect all of us? How does it affect the way we see ourselves? And in what ways does it prohibit us really being ourselves? And what does grace have to do with it? We'll spend a few moments chatting about these things as we take a look at the contents of this week's edition of Another Weekends. I'm here with Ethan Richardson, and Ethan has penned, or typed, rather, I'm guessing you don't do it long form <laughs> by pen first. No, no. How are your typing skills? Unbelievably good. Like embarrassing. Did you take typing in like high school? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm probably, um, I would say my year in, in middle school was like the first year where typing was something that, that was natural. I mean, it was like the beginning of the end for the typing classes in middle school for us. Um, Cause everyone already knew how to do it. Everyone was already on instant message. So you're ASDF, JKL, semicolon, two hands. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That in a Kentucky accent. That's what it was. You're like, a, you're like a character from like, you know, American fiction. Like it's like the Flannery O'Connor sort of, you know, yeah. <laughs> so you penned proverbially typed another week ends this week. So tell all of our cosmopolitan listeners that are waking up tomorrow morning with their cup of coffee and perhaps their tablet or their phablet and they're figuring out what to pay attention to, like be their guide. Yes. Well, take a ride with me once again into the the land of uh, West Coast suicides seems to be uh, happening quite a bit, and uh, it's not the first time Another Weekends has has hit upon this phenomenon, um, and it's not the first time it's happened in Palo Alto either. So there's, there's a new article out. It's the cover article in The Atlantic uh, for this next month, and it's talking about this new um, this new wave of suicides that's happened amongst uh, high school students, um, and 
And once again, not surprisingly, it, it has to do with um, performanceism and the pressure of, of kids to, um, to succeed. And again, I mean, the irony is, is blaring in a place like Palo Alto where uh, you have this picture of sort of West Coast success. I mean, these are the people who uh, make the Internet simple. You know, they're the ones who are looking for um, like disease detecting nanoparticles that we can ingest to help us live forever. And, and we have suicide rates that are four or five times higher than the national average uh, in, these, in these high schools in California. So uh, that's that's the that's sort of like what we're jumping off with in, in the in another weekends this week. And Hannah Rosen is covering the story, and she's talking about um, a series of uh, these suicides and the families involved. And and she also talks about um, this um, this woman named Sunaya Luthar who. Uh, has actually done studies um, that are comparing sort of a U-curve that, um, that shows that folks growing up in, in poor economic uh, environments, they're usually the ones that we find to be at risk, of course. And, um, and there's a lot of studies done on at-risk youth in the inner city or in poverty-stricken environments. But um, we don't pay so much attention to the ones that are in um, the upper echelon. And her work has found that a lot of these school districts uh, where families are making, you know, $200,000 a year or more um, are actually just as much at risk as, um, as the poor kids. And mainly um, how that looks is different, but um, the risks are, are just as dead. Yeah, and there was this term I had never heard, suicide clusters. I've defined as multiple yeah. deaths in close succession and proximity, which they say feed on viral news and, and social media stuff. I mean, that's the, the fact that, like, there's a term for this among affluent suburban, you know, suburban, that, that's really, that was, you know, I mean, that is really arresting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And, and what Rosen is getting at here is that usually you don't see, she calls it an echo cluster. Usually you don't see it happen again in the same place. What's crazy about Palo Alto is that this happened, there was a suicide cluster in 2010 uh, that sort of rocked their community. And then five years later, here it is happening again. Um and a lot of that, she says, has to do with social media, um, not just that um, sort of the news can spread as quickly, but but also that um, kids find themselves sitting in their rooms, comparing themselves and um, measuring themselves against what they're seeing on, on their phones and on their screens with uh, with people that they go to school with every day. And keeping up is is something that's no longer possible. Yeah, you know, one of the other things I noticed in the article that, that Hannah Rosen pointed out was that they these kids have inherited 
their performancism and the kind of perfectionism from their parents and it's sort of successfully imprinted on them. So there's this kind of, it, it, in some sense, you know, they're, it's not like they're oh, rebelling or something. This is, they're, they're doing, they're, they're following the values that have been instilled. Right. Right. And, and I think a lot of, uh, I think a lot of, um, a lot of parents anywhere, not not just on, on the West Coast, but anywhere would shy away from sort of the the tiger mother claim, you know, that that you're you're a really uh, hard hitting parent that demands perfection from your children and, are, you know, going to make your your kids sleep under the bed if they don't, you know, play the right piano chords. But at the same time, um, what Hannah Rosen is getting to in her in her diagnosis, at least, is that um, it can be just as poison if if the relationship is merit based at all. You know that um, that parents are praising their children uh, at all implies that there's some sort of earning to be to be had, and even if the relationship is based on constant affirmation, um, a child still has has the worry of trying to decide, well, if I do this right, or if I do this wrong, am I, am I loved? Um, and so, yeah, she, she finishes off kind of talking about what good parenting would look like and, and, um, and figuring this out from, you know, this world of suicide clusters for her, she sees it as what she calls disentangling love from praise uh, which I thought was was a really beautiful way of of really describing uh, the gospel. Yeah, I think of this. There's a section in Frank Lake's Clinical Theology, a wonderful book, you know, in psychiatry and, and Christianity, where he says yeah. he has that section. I think it's on sleep issues, and he has this chart where on one column is how what happens if you have acceptance as a gift early on developmentally, and the other if acceptance is a reward, <laughs> and and how. And how you part of it is even in dreaming, like you kids who have acceptance as a gift, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, they know they're accepted in a gift, grace oriented way. They're able, like, the monsters get conquered in the dreams. But when it's a reward, you can't free associate. So you have to, so you're either terrorized or there's a censor, like a kind of editor that never lets the monster come out and get conquered. Like, it's, it's this sort of, and I think about Lake there writing, you know, 40 years ago or some 50 years, but it's, it's still incredibly relevant uh, and even more so. In- oh my God. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that she is pointing out is, you know, in this world, um, in this Silicon Valley world where um, everything is hyper success oriented, you know, Stanford's just down the road. Um only a quarter of the kids that are coming from these public schools are able to get into the schools in their state because um, many of the colleges in California are like impossible to get into. Um, but it's not just it's not just as simple as trying to um, even out the balance of work and play. It's it's becoming the fact that you cannot. Um, you cannot even conceive of play as anything but more work. Your life is work. And, and so in order to silence that sound of needed uh, performance, 
Um, you have to, you would have to get rid of yourself, which is, um, of course, like how this is all going down. So. It's interesting too. I think of Christian Smith's work on adolescent and young adult spirituality. And he figured out, you know, after all this exhaustive research, that the religion of, of, of teens and young adults is, is basically their boomer parents, moralistic, therapeutic deism, right? It's moralistic. Like there's not a like, great, it's, it's, it's God does, God likes the good people and doesn't like the bad people. It's therapeutic. The most important thing is happiness, you know, success. And it's deistic. God is impersonal. God's kind of removed. And it's funny because you look at like the Pew study that just came out, uh, the results, the, you know, the follow up to the 2007, it's still an overwhelming number of people that believe in God, but it doesn't sound like the, it's anything like the God of grace. It sounds like it's probably, if, if there's any God talk in these homes, it's probably the moralistic, therapeutic, deistic kind of thing that actually, instead of being a refuge, it's, it, it, it's, it's like a, some sort of, you know, idol that fuels the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The elf on the shelf, you know, Santa Claus. Um, yeah, that's, that's what we find with, um, there was another, and, and I actually wrote about this in, uh, the work and play issue, but, um, there was another suicide cluster in, in Las Vegas, um, Tony Shea, I think, is the CEO of Zappos, the shoe company. And uh, and he had this grand vision of sort of uh, reinvigorating Las Vegas, turning Las Vegas um, into this uh, tech bubble and bringing in all of these young, uh, ambitious thinkers and, and doing all this great work. And um, and people came and and they're, you know, their food trucks and all sorts of stuff in the middle of downtown Las Vegas, which was really run down. And, um, but Tony Shea's like main philosophy is happiness. I mean, that's, that's the philosophy of Zappos. And, um, and so what he found in, in this suicide cluster and the fact that like this big project as it, as it was conceived, isn't really, uh, coming out to be what it was supposed to be uh, is that you can't, you can't conjure happiness. You, you can't sort of live with happiness as, as the goal because um, happiness as a goal uh, is fruitless, you know, and um, it instead just becomes one more law to live by. And, um, and that's what you see a lot with, with American Christianity too, is this chasing after, um, an emotional um, fulfillment um, that just becomes one more item to check off. Yeah. So it's people. So five days a week, you're in one kind of rat race and then maybe one day a week on a pious, you know, maybe two, 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 three times a, week, a month on a pious month, you go punish yourself on the performance wheel on Sundays as well. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, it's the it's the pressure of the cocktail party too. You know, you think about like how how you're sounding, and rather than being there and enjoying yourself, you're thinking about how you um, how you ought to be um, portraying yourself and how you ought to be listening, and um, if you're meeting the right people, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's it's not just turning play into work; it's it's making a self that is. 
um, that is only in the proof. Yeah, Tom, Thomas Merton says it's the difference between seeing yourself and being yourself. That when you're being yourself, mm -hmm. it's spontaneous. You're kind of there. It's but your shadow self comes when you're seeing yourself. Like you're seeing who you're trying to project at the cocktail party, at the PTA meeting, at the. Right. Now tell us about on another note uh, something else. Tell us about this woman that wrote in to ask Polly in the New York mags. Yeah. Um, so Heather Haverleski, she's one of our favorites here um, at Mockingbird, and so um, she runs this Ask Polly column in New York Magazine, and uh, last week's was was so fantastic. She, she gets a letter from uh, a woman who is kind of just in love with the life that she's crafted for herself. You know, she got the great job. Um, she, she's sort of like climbed the ladder and landed where she, she hoped to land. And now she sort of finds herself, um, peaking and a little bit worried about the fact that she's peaking. And she says, um, and then this past week I've gotten laid off and things are sort of feeling like they might be falling apart. I'm looking around at all these things I've, I've achieved and wondering, um, what's still there. She talks about it, a guy that she's, that was, um, you know, that she's been on and off with for the last 10 years. And he, he's, He's not even incredibly good looking, but he fits the part. He like, you know, checks the box. And um, Haverleski's response is um, is just amazing. I'll read a little segment if that's okay. absolutely OK. But you have to read it in her voice. Just okay. kidding. <laughs> uh, you say that after being laid off, you don't have a life people are jealous of anymore. Listen to me. No one was jealous of your life before either. They could see you frantically peeling fava beans. They could see you talking too fast and drinking too much just to impress a crusty old dude who isn't even nice to you. They could see you looking for your next fix of glamour and success, aiming to work at one of the most prestigious companies in the world, aiming for more, 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 and never, ever just some or a little or enough. They could see that you weren't that happy and they felt sorry for you. They still do. Now that you're down in the dumps, though, pay attention to who is nicer to you than ever and who's not. And I'll bet some of your oldest friends are showing a renewed interest in you. I'll bet they're asking about how you are and listening when you stumble on your words and growing less interested when you assure them that everything will be back on track in no time. Hmm. Yes, I, I think that's uh, it's so I mean, she's such a good writer for one. Uh, but no, I don't, I don't peel fava beans, but I do find myself exhausted by the number of selves that I am constantly trying to sort of keep tabs on and present to the world. And it seems like what she's getting at is the liberating feeling that at some, at some point, what would happen if all the plates just fell? And, and you were just you, you know, just like you were saying with Merton, being you and you couldn't be anything else. You could only be you. Um, but that might be something liberating. 
Yeah, sometimes when people quote Jesus saying, you know, if if you try to gain your life, you know, you lose it. But if you lose your life, you save it. I feel like there's a kind of like Herculean radical discipleship way where people quote that. And it, 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 it again, just compounds the problem, like, because, well, you've also got to be this religious athlete and superhero as well. And actually, you can keep the, the discipleship law. You can kind of say, but I feel like what you're saying is almost the, the it's sort of the, it seems like the real liberating sense of those words of Jesus. Like, yeah, they're losing your life in a sense of being in the vulnerable, fragile places where you know that you're finite. And, and and fragile and faltering yeah. is when, you know, the one who is forgiven much loves much. The one who's forgiven little loves little. Mm, yeah, no, I think that's that's exactly what it is. You know, um, I mean, and I, I thought of the Good Samaritan too. You know, that there's there's really something um, there's really some some comfort found in realizing that you're the one in the ditch. You're not. You're not the one who um, who stoops down and helps people, um, and there's a real comfort in, in actually finding yourself to be a sinner. So, yeah, and this is this is coming from Heather Haverleski, who's probably gotten no no sense that she's talking about this sort of thing. But I resonate with the truth of it um, in my own uh, in my own Christian life. Christ plays know? in a thousand places. And maybe it's the, the, those who forgiven much not only love much, but maybe actually can live much. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, also you think about the the Pharisee and the publican, and that you know the Pharisee comes in and um, and he's completely uh, he's completely happy with the life that he's branded. You know, he's he's done it all so well, and um, this is the person writing Polly, you know, I've, I've done it, you know, like, look, I, I've, I've fooled everyone. I've, I've made it work. And, and then the tax collector walks in and he's beating his breast and he won't even look up. And he says, you know, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, and Jesus says, well, who walked out of there justified? Um, only one of them did. And, and it's interesting that, the whole time the Pharisee was trying so hard to not be the guy who got justified. In the yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for all your work on another weekend. And yeah, I hope you. all of our readers, uh, all of our listeners uh, give it a read and maybe can relax this weekend in the truest sense of the word and not um, be, not, or, you know, uh, yeah, feel free to be themselves. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I hope that for for all of us. Thomas Merton, probably the most prolific Catholic mystic and monk of the 20th century, once said to a fellow monk, if I make anything out of the fact that I am Thomas Merton, I am dead. If you make anything out of the fact that you are in charge of the pig barn, you are dead. Quit keeping score altogether and surrender yourself 
with all your sinfulness, the God who sees neither the score nor the scorekeeper, but only his child redeemed by Christ. May it be so by God's grace for all of us, and happy Thanksgiving. See you next week here at the Mockingcast.